You can turn in your Bibles to Judges uh, chapter 10. We've been going through this uh, series in the book of Judges called The Empty Throne and uh, looking at how uh, sometimes we trick ourselves into thinking that the throne of our hearts is empty uh, when, when God is always the rightful uh, occupant of that throne. And sometimes we can trick ourselves into thinking that we're the ones sitting on the throne or that nobody's sitting on the throne. But the reality is, is that, that that's always God's rightful place and there's nothing we can really do to take him out of it. Uh, but we can trick ourselves into thinking that he's not there. Uh, the, the, the sermon today I'm, I'm calling, it's not a cycle, it's a spiral. And uh, if you've been with us uh, for a while here in the book of Judges, or even if you haven't, I can get you up to speed. Uh, the book of Judges walks through this continual cycle that we see where over and over again what happens is uh, the people of Israel, God's chosen nation, he wants to bring them into the promised land. He wants to give them this special relationship with him and all these good things. Uh, but they go into the promised land. Uh, they forget about God. They turn to following after other gods. God allows them to feel the consequences of what they've done. And so he allows other nations to come in and oppress them and tear them down to the point where they're in distress. And then they call out to God, God, please rescue us, save us. And then God sends a judge to rescue them. They return to God and there's peace in the land for a time. And then they go back into worshiping other gods. And it's this cycle over and over again. And so as we look at it, you might look at the, today's passage and be like, oh yeah, I know what's going to happen here. I've seen this before. I know where this goes. And so when you look at it, you see this cycle. But the reality is if you flip it on its side, I'm going to get 3D with you guys here this morning, right? <laughs> so it looks like this from, from this side. But when you flip it over, it looks like this, right? It's just going down. Every time they go through this cycle, they're getting further and further from God's God's will, and we're going to see it, it displaying itself in a variety of ways in today's passage where uh, this continual rejection of God, this continual uh, weak repentance leads to this spiraling further and further away. And that's the big picture that I want you to, to get today that you might feel like, hey man, I'm just stuck in this rut. I just, I, I'm in this sin thing and I, I can't seem to kick it and so I'm just kind of stuck in a rut and I feel like I'm spinning my wheels and I'm not going anywhere. And, and, uh, but the reality is, is that if we stay in that, that we're spiraling. We're pulling further and further, and so, so we've got to break free from that. And we're going to look at this passage today and see how it shows us to do that. So let's begin in uh, Judges uh, chapter 10. We're going to begin in verse 6. And um, it says this. It says, The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, the gods of the Philistines, I mean, they were almost like, hey, is there any other gods we could worship, right? Like, we're, we're kind of getting our checklist off. We've, 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 uh, if there's another god, we can, we can worship him, right? So every god around, they're, they're just going after him. They forsook the Lord, and they did not serve him. And so the anger of the Lord <clears throat> was kindled against Israel. And he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites, and they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years, they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. So we see the cycle playing out, right? They go after all these other gods. God allows them. He sells them into the hands of their enemies. They're severely distressed. And so what do we expect to happen? They're going to call out to God, right? They're going to say, God, help us, right? God, save us, right? Verse 10, the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. This time it's a little bit different. Verse 11, the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and from the Ammonites and from the Philistines? 
The Sidonians also and the Amalekites and the Moanites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand, and yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen, and let them save you in the time of your distress. The people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. And so they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord, and he became impatient over the misery of Israel. So we see in here this, this, this picture of the, the spiral, and it, and it kind of got to a point where God said, enough is enough. Like this, we're, we're kind of continuing to do this over and over, and we, we see this tension enter in. We talked about this a few weeks ago, that all throughout the book of Judges, there's this tension of what is God going to do? The people keep turning their backs on him. They keep disobeying him. He told them that there would be a penalty for it, and so what is he going to do? Is he going to be the righteous judge that looks at them and says, hey, you've broken the law, you've disobeyed, I told you what the penalty is going to be, and now you're going to get the penalty. Is that what he's going to do? Or is he going to say, hey, I, I love you, I'm compassionate, I'm merciful, I'm gracious, I'm going to forgive you again. I'm going to welcome you back in again. Which one? Which one is going to win out? Which, which side of God's nature is going to, going to, they don't seem like they could possibly coincide. And that tension not only exists in this moment and in the book of Judges, but it continues all the way through the Old Testament. And we see that it's not until the cross of Jesus that the righteousness of God and the grace of God intersect at the cross of Jesus, where we see God takes sin so seriously that his son had to die, had to give his life on the cross. He didn't turn a blind eye. He required full payment. And yet, he also demonstrates his incredible grace and mercy where he takes that penalty upon himself. And so the book of Judges is crying out for this, this perfect Savior, Jesus. It, it calls for him. It, it points to him in his absence from this picture. But God says, hey, I'm not, I'm not going to keep saving you like this. this. This can't last forever. This cycle is not good. It's not healthy. False repentance, which is what we see originally, says, give me what I want. You notice in their first example, they come to God and they say, hey, we've, we've served the veils, we've forsaken you, God, help us. What they're really saying is, God, we don't like the consequences of what we've brought upon ourselves, and we know that you can give us something better. So, God, we're coming to you because of what, we want what you can give to us. We want the peace that you can give to us. We want the freedom that you can give to us. We want the restoration that you can give to us. God, we're going to come back to you so you can give us what we really want. When you take that approach, what's the end goal? The end goal is my desires, right? God is a, a vehicle. He's a bridge. He's a way to get to what I really want. And God says, no, that's not good enough. <laughs> that's not going to cut it. I'm not going to enable you to get what you want. I'm not going to come along and just uh, be used by you again just to, to get to that peace that won't last so that you can chase after other gods again and then you can come back and cry to me again. No, I don't, I don't want that. And so the people, he calls for real repentance. And then look at the, how the people's response changes. Then the people said, we have sinned. We're sinners. We're messed up. We're broken. Do to us whatever seems good to you. You know what, God? We're not going to lay out an agenda. We're not going to tell you what you should do. Whatever you want, we're with you, God. We're, we're with you. Now the goal is, hey, we just want to be with you, God. You set the course. You lay it out. We just want to be with you. Do whatever seems good to you. But please save us. If we're dead, we can't serve you. If we keep getting crushed and oppressed, we, we can't. And so we ask you humbly, God, we'll do whatever you want us to do, but please can you save us? And God looks at this differently. This is the difference between 
being sorry that you got caught, and being truly repentant of the sin itself. And God responds to that. He, he answers that. Now, I, wa- I want you to think about what, when we come across, and we all do this, right? When we, when we come to the Scripture, uh, when we're in a Bible study, maybe we're in a discipleship group with somebody, maybe we come on Sunday morning, and we're confronted with something in God's Word that runs counter to the way that we're living our life. Uh, there's at least three possible ways to respond to that. There's probably way more than that, but there's at least three. Uh, the first one is just to reject God's commands and walk away. We read in the Bible, we see something we don't like, and we're like, I'm out of here. You know what? <laughs> I, I, like my, I like what I'm doing way more than what God is asking me to do, and I, I don't want to bear the uncomfortableness of what he's requiring of me, so, so I'm out. So you come, and you go, and, and then you run into, you know, maybe you run into somebody from church, and they're like, hey, I haven't seen you at church in a while. Like, yeah, you know, that preacher, it seems like he's always railing on fill in the blank, whatever your pet sin is, right, that, that you don't want to hear about and you're hypersensitive to. And so in your mind, every week the preacher's preaching about that when the reality is, is just it's on the front of your heart. And you're like, man, I don't want to go here about that. It's, it's his fault, right? He's, he's the one. He's got, a, he's got a secret agenda. He's got this pet thing that he's always going after, and I don't need that. So I just hang out and, uh, you know, I go to Starbucks on Sunday morning and I just drink a coffee, and that's how I do church now, right? You know, we, we remove ourselves from the source of con- uh, 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 the, the thing that's, uh, that, that's causing our heart to feel convicted, right? So that's, that's one option. We just pull ourselves away. We leave. The other way, I recommend this way, is to fully embrace God's call uh, to obedience and repentance. And so we hear it and we're like, wow, God, that is not how I'm living. And yet I see clearly here in your word that that's what you want for me. And maybe with tears in our eyes, we, we come and and before him, and we'd say, Lord, I, I'm not living the way you want me to live, and I know it's going to be hard to get back on track. I know it's going to be hard to get where you want me to be, but I'm committed to doing it through your power, and I know I don't have the strength to do it, but God, I'm asking you, give me the ability to get right with you. Make me right with you, right? This full-on repentance, this heart change, that's what we're all about. That's what we desire to see every single week. That's what, as a church, what we're striving for, that the people don't get stuck where they're at, but they see the call of God towards holy and righteous living, and they pursue it with all that they are. As broken and, and feeble as we are, and as, even though that our attempts uh, sometimes go astray, but we're striving to be right with God. That's, that's what we really want. Sadly, the, the third way that I would point out uh, is one that a lot of us end up in, right? And it's this. It's, it's to remain connected to God, but weighed down with guilt because you live in this disobedient tension, right? So you have this thing in the back of your mind. As soon as I say that, for, for a bunch of us, there's a thing that pops up in our mind right away, like, oh, you're talking about that thing. Here he goes. He's railing on that thing again, right? I didn't even say what it is, right? But, but you know, yeah, it, it, could be, it could be related to a relationship that you're in that is not an appropriate relationship for you, right? Maybe you're treating somebody like your spouse who's not your spouse. Maybe, you're, uh, maybe you have a, an inappropriate relationship with a coworker that hasn't crossed the line, but you're flirting with it, right? Maybe, it's, maybe it has to do with giving. Maybe it's uh, uh, you, you get angry whenever you read anything where God talks about generosity or giving. You're like, oh, oh God, you're, you just want my, right? Whatever it is, There might be something, and so every Sunday you come and you want a fresh start, but there's this thing in the back of your mind where the enemy's whispering like, hey, yeah, yeah, that sounds great, but that's not for you because you're you're tied down with this thing. They'll never accept you. God will never accept you. He'll never embrace you. You couldn't be a a leader in that church. You couldn't couldn't take on a new responsibility because if they found out about this, they'd reject you like that, right? And so, so too many of us live in this disobedient tension where we, we're still coming to church, maybe we're showing up, we're still professing to follow Jesus, but we're just stuck in this thing. And we're not 
taking the hard steps to get over it, and we're not completely running away, and so we're just caught in this, this guilty, uncomfortable tension. And my hope is that today that God will push you towards being free from that, that that's not a way to live. That's not a happy way to live. And you might say, man, I'm just stuck in this rut. I'm just stuck in this cycle. But what I hope that you'll see today is that, that it's a spiral. The longer that you embrace it and live with it, the longer that you, you stay stuck in it. I love having Edgar and Shayla here to, to share with us. And I know that for anybody that's dealt with like a life-controlling issue, this is one of the challenges, right? That if you, if you have a relapse, if you go back to the thing that's been controlling you, it can, it can begin to break you down because then you don't have confidence that you can do it. Anytime you get victory over it, this is a thing in the back of your mind, but yeah, but you failed before. Yeah, you've got victory, but you failed. You got victory, but you failed. So, so yeah, you know, this, what's going to make this time different? How's this going to be lasting, right? But it can be lasting. When it's centered on Jesus, when it's centered on the gospel, he's the true judge that brings us true freedom from the things that entangle us. And so... Uh, so we're going to see this in detail in the story of Jetha that we're about to jump into. But this is the big idea that, that each one of us is on this mission that as God brings in things in our heart that are not in alignment with his will, it's our goal and our desire and our responsibility to pursue him with all that we are so that we can move forward, so we can break the cycle, break the spiral, and move forward into the things that he wants for us. We'll also see what the results are of, of this sort of half-hearted legacy of disobedience. And, and here's the reality. It takes a long time to turn a boat around, right? If you're in your car, you miss a turn, right? You hit the brakes. You can put it in reverse, spin around real quick. Uh, if any of you guys have ever been on a boat, <laughs> if you get going the wrong way in a boat, uh, you can't just hit the brake, right? <laughs> uh, it, it doesn't work that way. That you've gotta, you've gotta, it takes setting a course, and you've got to allow some time to turn, and it takes consistency. And if you get halfway around, and you're like, yeah, you go right back into it, right? So it's, it's this sort of, uh, Brian's going to be leading a study, a long walk. What, what's, the, what's the title, Brian? A long obedience in the same direction, right? A long obedience in the same direction. God, you want me back here, and I'm headed this way. Why? I, I do want to turn, and I just want to go, but sometimes it means I got to do this, and I got to do this, and I got to do this, and I can't give up until I get back on course, right? And so if that's what some of you, I'm not coming to saying, like, change today, Make it different. Do it now, right? That's not what I'm saying to you. I'm saying set the course to follow after God, whatever it takes. Say, hey, there's no, there's no turning back. There's no abandoning. I'm turning the wheel, and I'm going to hold it until I get through the power of the Holy Spirit, through God's, uh, through God's strength, until I get on his agenda. Let's look at Jephthah, and let's see what happens with him. Uh, verse 17, then the Ammonites were called to arms, and they encamped in Gilead, and the people of Israel came together, and they camped at Mizpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Uh, chapter 11. Now Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out, and they said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. You ever hung out with some worthless fellows? I have. I think at points in my life I've been the worthless fellow. Definitely hung out with some worthless fellows. Not a good situation, right? After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel, and when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. 
They said to Jephthah, come and be our leader that we might fight against the Ammonites. Now listen to the parallel between what's happening with Jephthah and what happens with God and, and the people of Israel. The people of Israel and God and, and, the, and the relationship of the people of Gilead with Jephthah. Look at the parallel that we see here, right? They say, hey, we're in trouble. Come help us, right? What's Jephthah say? Jephthah, uh, Jephthah says to the elders of Gilead, did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you're in distress? Right? Hey, you were chasing after all those other gods. Go ask them for help, right? So we see this parallel between what's happening with Jephthah and the people and what was happening with God and his people. The elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, that is why we've turned to you now, that, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, if you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be at your head. And the elders of Gilead and said to Jephthah, the Lord will be witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. So what we see is this rejected leader. He was a mighty man. He was a powerful warrior. But his brothers didn't want him to share in the inheritance because he was the son of a prostitute. And so they chased him off to a different land. But then when they needed trouble, they went after him. And they came back, and uh, the, they point out in the original language that the difference between this head and the leader, they came back and said, hey, we want you to be our military leader. We want you to lead us into battle. And he said, no, that's not good enough. He says, hey, if you'll bring me home, if you'll restore my inheritance, give me back what was rightfully mine, my birthright with my father uh, that my brothers chased me out of, if you give me that, and if you make me your leader over all of you, not just a military leader, but the actual ruler over you, then yeah, I'll do it. And they said, done deal. Because <laughs> if we're dead, what, good, what difference does it make, right? So sure, you can have it all. Just, just come back and help us. Now, uh, in verse 12, it picks up, uh, 12 through 28 is kind of an extended discourse, and I'm just going to summarize it for you, but essentially, uh, Jephthah lays out how this is a just war, that what they're doing is, is righteous and it's good, and uh, there's a couple significant things about it. Number one, it shows that Jephthah has this intimate knowledge of the history of the people of Israel. He goes on a history lesson. Uh, he goes to the king of Ammonites, and he says, hey, listen, uh, you guys should stop attacking us. There's no good reason for you to do what you're doing. Uh, we were trying to come through peacefully. Your people attacked us, and so we defended ourselves and rightfully won the land. And P.S., that was 300 years ago, and no one for the past 300 years has tried to lay claim to this land. So for you to come in now and try and take it is just wrong, right? So he's demonstrating that he knows the history of the people of Israel, so he can't plead ignorance down the road, right? So if he knows the history, then he also knows the commands and the rules that God had laid out for them. So he's kind of setting up the fact that, like, hey, I should know better. I, I'm not uneducated. Uh, I know I ran off and was hanging out with a bunch of worthless fellows, but I know my stuff. I know the history of my people, and I know what we're supposed to be doing. And he's also making the case for the people that sometimes they can, they can be like, hey, maybe these guys are right. Maybe we did steal their land. Maybe we shouldn't do that. Like, right, we've been through this with these, uh, our different conflicts in the Middle East, and there's always this discourse and this discussion of like, hey, is this even a just war? Are we trying to take something that doesn't belong to us? And, and there's different factions and people uh, arguing, and, and I can imagine there's nothing more demoralizing for a soldier to be fighting in a war where he's like, I don't even know if we're doing the right thing here, right? And so, so he's laying out the case and saying, no, this is just. We have a right to defend ourselves. We have a right to this land, and you should cease and desist, or else we're going to we're gonna have to bloody our knuckles on you guys, right? And so, um, so he lays that out, and of course, they're like, eh, no thanks. We, we're not interested. We still want to kill you and take your land. So, so it wasn't ultimately effective, uh, but he made an effort uh, uh, to, to find peace. And so we pick it up in verse 29. Verse 11, 29, it says this, Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. Now we're going to begin to see the real uh, spiral kick in. 
where it looks like things are going good and then things are about to go tragically sideways. He passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> right? You get this ominous feeling like, oh, man, I don't know what's going to happen. But that does not sound like a good idea. Like, what's the scenario in which that works out good, right? Whatever comes out of the, the house, when I come home, I'm picturing like Lassie coming right out, right? Is it his faithful dog? Like, whatever it might be, like, what's the good scenario? Like, oh man, hopefully maybe one of my enemies broke into the house and he'll come running out to grieve me. I, right? Like, how is that a good vow? It, it doesn't make any sense, right? It's, it's a foolish vow. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. He struck them from Aurora to the neighborhood of Minna, 20 cities, and as far as Abel Kiramim, with a great blow, so the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. 18 years of misery and crushing, and then he gets the Spirit of the Lord upon him. He sent, and in two sentences, like, oh yeah, and he just went and totally beat them all, right? <laughs> they don't give us battle details. They, they just say, yeah, God was on the side, so obviously he won, right? Closed case. Then, verse 34, then Jephthah came home at Mizpah. What's going to happen, right? Behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and he said, Alas, my daughter, you've brought me very low and you've become the cause of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord and I cannot take back my vow. She said to him, My father, you've opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth. Now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, the Ammonites. So she said to her father, let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone for two months that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. So he said, go. And then he sent her away for two months and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days in the year. So he's pointing to this tradition that they had in their culture, where the, and he's saying, hey, this is based on a historical fact. This really happened. Isn't this tragic? Isn't this so, so sad and so horrible? In the downward spiral, things are done in the name of the Lord, but with a flawed understanding of his will and his character. Did God want him to offer his daughter as a burnt offering? No, he didn't understand it, but he did in the name. He said, I vow to the Lord, I'm going to do this horrible, despicable thing. And that's what happens when, when the spiral starts to spiral further away. We claim to do things. John pointed this out so well last week, right? Gideon was like, I'm not going to rule over you. My sons aren't going to rule over you. Uh, God is going to be your king. But, uh, hey, will you give me all your gold? And uh, I'm going to take a bunch of wives, and, and I'm basically, I'm going to act like your king. But no, God's your king, right? And in Jephthah, it continues this, this thing of like, I'm, I'm doing this for God, but he's not doing it for God at all. He doesn't understand him. Think about this in contrast to Jesus, who did everything in perfect accordance with his Father's will. That Jesus always knew exactly the nature and the character of his Father, and everything he, does, he did in the name of God the Father was done perfectly within his will. We begin to see the, the great divergence between these these, these, these earthly judges, these fleshly judges, and the great judge, Jesus, who was the perfect judge, who did everything perfectly. Jephthah 
It says he was filled with the Spirit. The victory was already his, but he reverts to this slot machine approach to God, what we already looked at, where he said, God, I want victory. You are my vehicle to victory. I'm going to put the, the coin of my promise, I'm going to put this coin of my vow in, and I'm going to pull the handle, and I'm going to trust that you're going to pay out in the end. You're going to give me the victory. What I want is not to be with you. What I want is the victory and all the spoils that you're going to give me. Right? He had a, he had a broken flawed theology, a broken understanding of how God works. He says, if I do this for you, then you'll give me what I want. Have you guys ever done this? Right? And sometimes that's part of a, our testimony. That's part of, hey, I was, I was just really broken. I said, God, if you take this thing for me, then I'll, I'll follow you, right? And so God can use that. He can work through that. Uh, but, but it's a sign of an immature understanding of who God is, right? That, that God doesn't exist to give us what we want. He'll meet us where we're at. Remember Gideon, he said, hey, can you make this fleece wet and the grass dry, and then you can make the grass dry and the fleece wet, right? And so, and God honored that. He's like, yeah, I'll go with you early on. <laughs> I'm, trying to, I'm trying to show you something about myself, but as we mature in our faith, we realize that, that God doesn't exist to give us the things that we want. Our goal should be like, God, whatever you want, that's what I want. I'll go there. I, I, I'm with you. I just want you. And so I ask you today, is that, is that where you're at in your heart? <laughs> Are you saying, God, whatever you want, wherever you take me, uh, I know what you want is better than what I want, and so I trust you, and I and I lean into you. Here's the thing in Leviticus 5, I won't go into great detail here, but uh, there was an out for him. In Leviticus 5, it, it says that if someone utters a rash vow, basically, and he realizes it, then he goes to the priest and he makes an offering, and he's released from it. That there was a, there was a legal out for him, that, that he God didn't expect or require him to fulfill this vow, and yet he went through with it. And he, not only did that, he blame-shifted, Right? Our culture is awesome at blame shifting. That's all we do, like all day long, right? And, and that's what he did. His daughter comes running out, and what does he say? He's like, oh, alas, you have brought great trouble on me. <laughs> you've made me, you've ruined my day. I had a good victory, and then you had to come running out the door, right? Like somehow it was his daughter's fault. You know, she's running out with tambourines dancing like, Dad, you won. It's like, oh, good job. Way to go, right? And in our worst moments, we do this too. We blame shift when we're not, when we're not seeking God in the right way, right? We, we, we do it. He says, and listen to what he says. He says, I can't break my vow, so it's going to cost you your life. Now think about how that contrasts with our perfect judge, Jesus, who doesn't say, I can't break my vow, so it's going to cost you your life. He says, you broke your vow, it's going to cost me my life. And I willingly take that on myself. Jesus is the better judge, by far, by far, by far. And ultimately, we see Jephthah's daughter is, is this beautiful picture uh, of what it's supposed to be like. She's a picture of what Jesus is like, right? She says, Father, you made this promise. You need to honor God, and it's going to cost me my life. But you got to do what's right in God. You know what I mean? She was willing to sacrifice herself when her father really should have said, hey, I'm going to take this on me. This is not going to come on to you. I'm going to take responsibility. God, I made a rash vow to you, and I'll take whatever punishment you want to pour out on me. But don't, don't hold it against my daughter. It's not her fault. Are we willing to take that, that sort of approach? Do we blame shift? Do we put it on other people? Do other people pay the cost for our sins? Or are we willing to take responsibility to own up and say, God, whatever, whatever, I, I've done this. I own up to it. I want to own it. You pour it out on me. And yet when I come to Scripture, I see that you're not going to pour it out on me because you pour it out on Jesus. And so I need to realize the heaviness and the weight of that, and I need to live my life in a different way. I deserve to be dead, and so I need to live 
knowing that I've got a Savior who saved me. It says she mourns her virginity, and it was, it was, it was not, um, as we think about, she was looking forward to the fairy tale marriage and, uh, you know, the, the, the long uh, party and the, and the beautiful gown. I mean, she might have been looking forward to some of those things, but, but really what it connects to is that uh, she was a virgin, which meant that she didn't have any offspring, which means uh, that Jephthah was not going to have an heir. So his agenda in this whole thing was to regain what he had lost, his, his rightful claim, his inheritance, right? That was what he was angling for in this whole thing. And now because of his own rash vow, now he's not going to have an heir. He's not going to have an inheritance. He's not going to have any of those things. God's agenda to free his people was accomplished. But Jephthah's selfish vow, his, his selfish agenda, was spoiled by his own sin. And his daughter, who's so admirable, mourns over that. Um, the last section, it's Judges 12, well, 1 through 14. I'll, I'll just summarize it for you. But basically what happens is the men of Ephraim come to him and say, hey, why didn't you invite us to come fight with you? We would have fought with you. Now we're going to beat you up. And, uh, and he said, no, no, I wanted you guys to come. You wouldn't come. And so then I had to go to war. And so these guys get in a war with each other, and they end up, uh, he ends up killing 42,000 Ephraimites. And they take the fords of the river, and when someone comes, a man from Ephraim comes to the ford, they say, hey, are you from Ephraim? And he's like, he's like no, 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 that's not, no, I'm not, I'm not that guy. And I was like, say Shibboleth. And he says, uh, Sibboleth, because they couldn't pronounce it right. They used this weird pronunciation thing. And if he said the word wrong, they took him off, and they drug him off, and they slaughtered him. How crazy, right? Look at the downward spiral does. It destroys the unity of God's people. These are brothers. The, the Gileadites and the, and the Ephraimites, they were, they were God's people together. They were, they were under uh, God's family, and yet it causes this battling within the family. But that's what happens when we each have our own view of what we think, guys. We do things in the name of God, but we reject his principles. That's what happens in the church when people claim to the faith of Jesus, but they don't follow the scriptures. It causes division. It causes disunity. It causes battling. It causes pain. It causes suffering. Whereas when we're following God with a united heart, it brings peace. The passage ends and it lists off Jephthah, after all this, judged Israel six years. John pointed this out last week that, 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 that the reign was short. No heir, no legacy, six years and he's done. And then there's three more judges that he lists after him and they sound amazing. They've got 70 sons riding on donkeys, all this appearance of royalty. They, they judge for eight years, ten years. The legacy is getting destroyed. It's getting diminished. And so what do we do with this? How do we respond to this? The way to the break the spiral is wholehearted, all-out commitment to God and to his ways. To teach your children, not your way. Hey, here's how we follow God. Here's what we do. Here's what God says. Kids, I don't want you to follow me. I want you to follow Scripture. I want you to follow me as I follow Scripture. But if I veer off of what this says, this is what you follow. Not, not my traditions, not my preferences, not my things. This is where you go. We center our families, our, our community, our church on the gospel. 20 years from now, Lord willing, Riverside will look completely different. The chairs will be arranged differently. Uh, there will probably be a DJ up here. We'll be doing hip-hop worship. I don't know what it's going to look like. And I don't care. I hope it's culturally relevant and it's connecting with the people of the day. But it's got to be centered on the gospel. Right? I don't care if they wear jeans and button-up shirts. I don't care what they wear. I don't care what they do. I just want them to be centered on Jesus. That's what's going to last. If you're caught in this rut of sinful disobedience, I would encourage you, today's the day. Well, we talked about three choices. You know, you could stop coming to church. I don't want you to do that. You could just continue in this kind of week after week, guilty. Oh, man, I just, ah, it's still, I mean, or you could just submit to God. 
and, and set the long course of following Him. In the same direction, set the course, let the Holy Spirit fill your, your sails and, and go after Him. Ultimately, what Israel needed was one Spirit-filled judge to provide the victory, even at great personal cost, even if some of the nation was going to reject that gift of salvation because they wanted to earn it, right? That's what we saw in Jephthah. That's what we see in ourselves, that we had one Spirit-filled judge who came and brought victory at great personal cost to himself. And even though some would reject him because they want to save themselves, the call for us is to follow him and to live in the victory he's provided. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for King, King Jesus, the great judge, the great Savior, the great victor, the one to whom we owe everything. We thank you that we don't have to fight the battles ourselves because he's already won the battle for us. God, help us to live in that victory. Help us to live as victorious people who've been freed, who've been rescued, who've been saved. If we're, if we're stuck in sin, it's of our own, uh, our own choosing, God. You don't want that for us. You desire to free us from that. It doesn't mean it'll be easy. It doesn't mean it'll be instant. But I pray that you would set our hearts towards repentance, that we wouldn't want to use you to get what we want, but we would just want you. And that you would give us whatever is right in your eyes, and we would be grateful and joyous for it. Lord, help us to find victory in this. And Lord, if there are any here today who don't know you as their Savior, who have never submitted and, and called out to you, and received the free gift of salvation that you've offered to us, I pray that today would be the day. I pray that they would have the courage uh, to ask you for forgiveness and to receive it with joy and to set the course uh, to follow you all the days of your life. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.